welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for September 20, 2020. The Kentucky Council of the Blind will hold its 2020 conference and convention on November 5th, 6th, and 7th. This year's convention will be virtual and anyone anywhere in the United States and world can attend our convention through the power of the Zoom telephone platform and ACB radio. The convention will be packed with programs, exhibits, tours, and our annual auction. The Kentucky Council of the Blind will be electing officers at this year's convention. Nominations are being sought for president, first and second vice president, secretary, and treasurer. KCB members interested in being considered for an office should contact Rick Boggess from Owensboro Nominating Committee Chair by phone at 270-684-4418 or by email at rboggess, B-O-G-G-E-S-S, 54 at gmail.com. Other members of the committee are Leonard Watkins of Louisville and Jerry Slusher of Covington. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind held its September quarterly meeting this past Friday virtually on the Zoom line. Our speaker was Bill Hollander, Louisville Metro Council person representing the 9th District, which includes the Kentucky School for the Blind, the American Printing House for the Blind, LC Industries, and the Clifton and Crescent Hill neighborhoods, among others. Bill has attended our meetings in the past, including both GLCB and KCB meetings, and he has been very supportive on sidewalk access, pedestrian safety, audible pedestrian signals, and other issues of importance to people who are blind or visually impaired. He is chair of the Metro Council Budget Committee, and he is very much in tune with not only Louisville issues, but issues that touch us all, regardless of where we live. He spent nearly an hour with us answering questions and addressing topics that are at the forefront for many cities across the nation today. His willingness to spend time on a Friday evening, never once hurrying us along or telling us that it's getting late and he hasn't had dinner yet, is an example of how important it is for our local chapters to build good working relationships with our elected officials. Listen on page two as Bill Hollander discusses a wide range of issues and responds to questions that touch our lives in this very different world in which we are living today. Page two. This is Bill Wright, and I would like to turn it over to uh, Debbie Deathridge to uh, welcome our speaker. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to welcome uh, Bill Hollander. He's our uh, district, ninth district uh, representative for this area. I'd like to thank him for coming to speak with us at our quarterly meeting. And Bill, we'd just like to see if you'd give us an update about what's going on. And then we'll, uh, if we have a few minutes, uh, we'll uh, open it up for questions if we have time. I know that you would normally, I guess, tonight be meeting at uh, United Personal Ministries. Is that your usual Friday location? Um, yes. And instead, you're you're having Zoom meetings. So, uh, you know, that's happening all over the city. It's happening with all of our meetings. So, 
Uh, instead of we were, we had a long meeting at, at Metro Council last night. Instead of meeting at Metro Council uh, downtown, we nearly all of us were uh, at home uh, using WebEx, and we've really been doing that, you know, since the uh, mid March when uh, the pandemic was declared. Um, it's been a really interesting process. I chair our budget committee, and so we really get deep into our budget from April until June, and I chaired about 30 uh, budget hearings, all from um, uh, what used to be my son's bedroom uh, upstairs in our house. And so we're, we're, you know, we're like everybody else in the world, we're all ad adapting. Um, the effects on the pandemic on the city uh, from a financial viewpoint uh, you know, have certainly been uh, serious, uh, but maybe not as bad as we first anticipated. When we saw the, the uh, you know, the sort of mass shutdown in mid-March, we really worried a great deal about uh, our uh, occupational tax revenue, mainly. This is employee withholdings for anybody who's working. You know, a portion of that uh, um, income is taken out and paid to the city as, a, as an employee, a withholding tax. And then we also have, that's pretty relevant to a, a, a slowdown in the economy, a net profit tax from businesses. And so we anticipated that we'd have really very severe reductions in both of those. And uh, unlike, say, the federal government, which can print money and doesn't have to have a balanced budget every year, we do. Um, and so we, we worried a great deal about what, whether we would be able to continue uh, all of our city services with the decline in tax revenue. I'm happy to say that, that that has not been as severe as we anticipated. Now, it's certainly been very significant, um, but it has not been quite as severe as we anticipated. So, so far, you know, we're kind of holding our, our own on that. We also have been fortunate to receive money from the federal government as part of the uh, CARES Act, which funded a lot of things, including the Paycheck Protection Program and lots of, lots of other programs, but did have a, a significant amount of money for state and local government. And we were fortunate in Louisville Metro to be a large enough county that we got a direct appropriation from the federal government as part of the CARES Act, uh, which is helping us manage through. There are real restrictions on how that money can be used, and so we're working through all of those kind of de details, but they are paying, for example, for most of our um, additional cost for our, our health department related to the pandemic, so that any testing, tracing, uh, buying of, uh, of uh, PPE, uh, you know, mask and that sort of thing, um, the, the, the uh, cost of the, the contact tracers. So if you are tested and, uh, and are determined to be COVID-19 positive, you'll get a call from the contract contact tracer who will try to determine who you've been in contact with so that other people can be contacted to try to reduce the spread. And all of those temporary workers are being paid for with CARES Act money. Uh, we are also using uh, CARES Act money for a fairly significant uh, assistance to small businesses. Uh, $21 million of that money is being used for assistance to small businesses who have been impacted by the pandemic. That amount of money is capped at, um, at $50,000. Uh, 
but uh, it, it, businesses apply for that and are given direct grants. Uh, it's not a loan. It's a direct grant, uh, frankly, to help them stay in business because one of the things we want to make sure is as best we can uh, that when the pandemic ends, businesses are still there and the jobs and services associated with those businesses are still there. So that's that's another way we're using CARES Act money. The other significant program is for eviction prevention. So we are helping um, uh, landlords who uh, have uh, uh, housing that qualifies. This would mean housing that's subsidized in any way uh, to get direct appropriations to, to uh, offset rent for some of their tenants. That's something they have to apply for. And then there's also a program to help uh, directly help tenants uh, who are unable to meet, meet their rent because of pandemic-related economic difficulties uh, to help them from being evicted. And there are also a number of issues in court where evictions have been slowed down and in some cases stopped by a whole bunch of different things, first by the governor then now by a directive from the federal government. All of these work in different ways, and some of them don't work very well. Some of them work some, but but they're it, you know it's an effort that requires attorneys to sort of step in and try to stop evictions. One of the things, and I will say, one of the biggest concerns that I had at the beginning of this, in terms of what the future would hold, was you know coming out of this, what would happen to people who are who are uh, tenants in residential properties who have been unable to pay their rent. Um, the last thing we need in this community is is, is um, an increase in homelessness, um, and so we we, as I said, we've spent 21 million dollars of the of the CARES Act federal CARES Act money for eviction prevention in the city. Um, other things that are going on, you know, the the uh, the death of Breonna Taylor is uh, is something that is has really changed a lot in the city. Um, and the, um, the, the calls for justice for Brianna and, and for uh, racial equity in the city uh, that have really intensified uh, since May. As you know, uh, uh, Brianna Taylor was killed in her apartment uh, by police who were executing a, a no-knock search warrant in mid-March. Uh, this really became... Uh, to sort of the forefront in the community in late May. Uh, there have been uh, continuous uh, nightly protests, largely peaceful um, since that time, uh, mainly focused at 6th and Jefferson, but sometimes in other parts of the community. Uh, and there were uh, early on, uh, and really I'm talking about the very first two or three days of this whole thing, there was some um, uh, less peaceful uh uh, protests, including some looting uh, and some broken windows, uh, uh, centered mostly downtown, not entirely downtown, uh, which still has uh, a lot of downtown uh, boarded up. So there's a lot of plywood on buildings uh, downtown. And I think there's several reasons for that. Um, one, it's uh, it, in many cases, the uh, they went up after the windows were broken and they're still up. Uh, and uh, I think we would be in a different situation if we didn't have the, the uh, COVID-19 sort of shutdown. There's very little business downtown. 
many offices don't have anybody working, Un totally unrelated to the protests. They're simply working from home, like I am most of the time. And so the Humanitar, for example, many uh, law offices, other kind of buildings, people just are, are, are working from home who can. So there's very little economic activity downtown. And at the same time, there are no conventions, virtually no conventions. So we have, did have a large hotel business, a large convention business. That essentially all stopped in mid-March and really has not recovered to any significant degree. So having a building that's got plywood on it to cover up what was a broken glass or, or maybe still is in some cases, not very many, I think, um, you know, I think those would be down at this point if we had a booming business downtown and people were back working and conventions were there, but they're just not. So there's not much business to be had, and therefore people are keeping up the, the, the plywood. There's also concern about what will happen when um, uh, in, the attorney general, who is handling the criminal side of this issue, uh, decides whether uh, there will be any criminal charges connected with the officers who were involved in in, um, in Breonna Taylor's death. And we anticipate that decision, but I don't know the date. The attorney general has not said the date, um, but it could be fairly soon, uh, maybe next week. There's some reporting of that, but I do not know that, so please don't say that I said that because I'm, I'm just really telling you what some people are speculating. Uh, and so I think there's some concern about taking down those boards with the potential for, for civil unrest, which I certainly hope will not happen when that announcement is, is made. So that's kind of what we're dealing with in the city. We have a real confluence of things. You know, they, I think they, you know, they've all come together to cause a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. And the racial equity issues and the police uh, conduct issues and the police reform issues are sort of a nationwide story, but, but they're also in a kind of unique way centered in Louisville uh, because of Breonna Taylor, which has become a, a large national story. So I'll just close with this and then take any questions you all have. We hear a lot of people saying that we need justice for Brianna, and certainly I've been saying that. I think that, you know, we have to focus on what that is. There are a lot, a lot of people who are in the streets who, who are saying that that means criminal charges against these officers. Uh, and the attorney general will, will make that uh, determination. And certainly if, there, if there's conduct that's criminal, there should be criminal charges. But I think it also means some police reform issues so that um, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Um, and we've done some of that. Uh, you know, no-knock warrants are now banned in the city of Lowell. Uh, we, and, and that's frankly a movement that's sort of spreading around the country and started here. I wish it had started earlier, but it, 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 you know, we passed an ordinance about that uh, in, I think, early June. Um, you, you know, we're talking about other things in, in the way of police reform. We're working hard on a, on a, a real meaningful civilian oversight system uh, that could review how the police do uh, some of these things. No matter what you think of, of police in general or, or, or our police force uh, in particular, uh, any agency that is in charge of in, uh, investigating itself when there's something like a, a, a police shooting uh, is going to be suspect. That's just the nature of any organization that's, that, that 
has the responsibility of investigating itself. And so I think oversight of that is, is, is important and, and done well can help restore confidence and trust. And we're working on a system that we, you know, uh, to put in place in Louisville, we are working, we'll need to help from the General Assembly to do some of those things. And then finally, just the whole issue of racial, racial equity. Um, uh, you know, we, there are parts of this city that uh, have been disinvested and, um, you know, we we need to do more to change that. Um, we have uh, in West Louisville, in West Louisville neighborhoods, we have 5,000 vacant or abandoned properties or lots. And, uh, you know, I say this in my district. If, if people in my district see a vacant property, uh, on a block, they get very worried about it because of, you know, the, what they think can result from that. Um, I, I, I just encourage anybody who lives in an area like my district to think about living in a block that has multiple, in a block, multiple vacant and abandoned properties, not just in that block, but the next block and that block, uh, and so on, and 5,000 in a in a, in a, in one portion of town. So we need to, you know, those are among the things that I think we need to, to work on in a really kind of accelerated way. So I'll just close there. I think it's a challenging time for the city. Um, uh, we're doing our best to work through it and, uh, you know, and like everybody else, we're doing most of it, uh, remotely. And, uh, and that of course makes things more difficult too. And, and not just for us, but, for everyone I know. So I don't know if that's helped you with anything. This is Adam Rushable. I'm just kind of curious uh, for you as a councilman with all of the regulations, mandates, executive orders, et cetera, that come from both the local, state, and federal levels, and then sometimes lawsuits that challenge those type of things. How difficult is it for you to keep up to know what is actually being applied currently and, you know, which um, things are, you know, either uh, not needed or, or, you know, that, that you don't have to worry about? How, how hard is that for you? Well, I think that's a – thank you. That's a good question. It is hard. And, uh, you know, some of you know I put out a, a, a newsletter – uh, every other week, and uh, you know, normally we would say this is open, that's open, uh, and we just stopped doing that because things were changing. Particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, things were changing so fast, and we knew that by the time you know we write the newsletter, sort of put it to bed, get it ready, ready to publish on a, on Wednesday night, and it goes out on Thursday morning, and things would change so fast that we'd be wrong, or if somebody read it on. You know, it's that the library is still open, but on, we knew that by Saturday it might be closed. So we just stopped doing all that and and, and uh, tried to direct people to websites and that sort of thing, which may not be, you know, frankly, I know for some of you it's probably not as convenient as having the, uh, the e-news with the with the word version. But um, you know, it 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 it, it is difficult, and uh, and and we get a lot of questions about why we're doing this or that. Why, uh, you know, why is this city service closed? Why is it? Why can't we reopen? And we try to, we try to stay informed and and ask questions of, of people as to you know why these decisions are made, being made. 
so that we can at least convey uh, the answers to them. And it's, you know, people are making decisions they never had to make before. For example, I'll give you one now. I mean, I, I really want to get our libraries open. And um, with, that's been slow. It's been really halting. I mean, we have drive-up services and walk-up services where you can reserve a book and then go pick it up. But in terms of going into the library and browsing, that's, we're not doing that anywhere. We do have four libraries open, I think, now. No, it's more than that. I think it may be, it may be seven or right? maybe eight, where you can reserve time on a computer. But, you know, that time is very important to people, so having computer access. And, and I'd like to see a lot more open than that. But, again, that's the whole issue of, you know, separating the computers and so that people aren't too close to each other and then making sure that the, everything is clean after people are gone. And it's a, it, it's a very, you know, difficult process. We had a lot of questions with things like, you know, um, um, uh, tennis courts when the pandemic began. Why, why can't, you know, why can't you play tennis? Well, I mean, this is a, if you think about it, this is a, you know, people were saying, well, you stay a long way away from each other when you're playing tennis. Well, that's true, but you're also touching a ball, right? That's going back and forth and in people's hands. So you had to explain that kind of thing. Well, how's that different from golf? Well, you, you know, you're not touching a ball with golf. You're not sharing a ball with golf. Uh, necessarily in the same kind of way. So it's those kind of really uh, uh, difficult things to, to explain. And then all the rules on, you know, restaurants, whether it's 25% or 50% or whatever, um, uh, you know, we just try to keep up with it the best we can. Um, and, frankly, refer a lot of people to, to websites that have, uh, you know, changing information. Thank you. Sure. This is Matt Sound and... <clears throat> I'll just say before I ask my questions that I don't live in your district, but you can feel free to answer if you want to. Okay. <laughs> the um, uh, two questions. One, the COVID-19 cases in Louisville continue to remain high comparatively to the rest of the state. And, you know, every day we're at the, we're at the top of the list for new cases. How do you think, just in your opinion, uh, how, how well do you think people are complying with the contact tracing and the other mandates that have been put in place? That's number one. <clears throat> and then two, uh, on the Internet, sometimes good things come out of the Internet, but uh, there is a private Facebook group that focuses on TARP 3 issues. And recently, TARC eliminated several fixed bus routes that I am concerned will eliminate services for people where, you know, before they lived within the three-quarters of a mile of the route, and now because TARC has eliminated that route, they eliminate their service. Is there any way that we can get an accounting from TARC of how many people were impacted and lost service or have had services reduced due to the route reorganization? Uh, sure. I, uh, uh, thanks for the questions. Into, I'll answer the first one first. How well are people complying? Um, you know, we get a fair number of people who contact us and say, I saw something that's not right. There, I, I was at a football game and I saw – you know, this or that. 
uh, in terms of, of groups of, of kids or sometimes adults or, you know, that kind of thing. Or I was at, I went by this restaurant and people were way too close together. We do report those and the health department does, uh, investigate those, I think, and go look and, you know, not for the purpose of shutting anybody down or finding them, but warning people, I think. And, and, uh, and so we do, we do get that in general, I think, uh, when I'm out at stores, uh, uh, you know, I think people are complying pretty well uh, in the city. Uh, I, I, you know, I, my mother lives in, in, uh, in a small town in Indiana. And, and so sometimes I'm in that small town. And quite honestly, I don't see the same level of compliance there as I do here. Um, you know, sometimes I have to stop on the way to that small town, and sometimes I don't see much compliance in some of those kind of stores. But around here, uh, I see pretty good compliance, I think. You know, it's hard on, on, uh, out on the street. I mean, uh, and I'm, I walk a lot, uh, you know, in the, in the neighborhood. I live in Crescent Hill, um, but very close to Clifton, a block away from Clifton. And uh, it's just hard. I mean, when you're walking down the street, so, so you, you know, you sometimes are close to people uh, on the sidewalk. I think people try to stay as far away as they can. Most people are not wearing masks, you know, when they're just out for a walk on the sidewalk. And of course that's not required if you're not going to be close to anybody and not. Um, so, you know, I, in terms of, of compliance, I think, I, I think people are, are doing a, a pretty good job in the city. That's at least my, um, you know, what it looks like to me. On contact tracing, it's a great question, and I do not know the answer. So, and I really should know that answer, what kind of cooperation they're getting. Uh, from what I hear in other places, and this has nothing to do with Louisville, so I don't know the answer here. I think, I think around the country, what I've read is that people are not getting the level of cooperation from contract tra- tracing that they'd like. There's just a general, when somebody calls you and asks, you know, where, tell us every place you've been in the last, you know, a week or whatever, uh, people are reluctant to do that. They shouldn't be. I mean, that's how you st- stop or slow the spread. And we've tried to tell people, if you get that kind of call, please, you know, answer the questions. And because the only purpose of that is to try to, you know, is to try to slow the spread. But there, but I, I think some people are just reluctant to, to do that. Um, but, I, but I do not know what level of of cooperation they're getting in Louisville, and it's a great question. I know it's one I'll ask the health department uh, next week about. Uh, on TARC-3, uh, so we asked me about, you're not asking about TARC-3 uh, cutbacks. You're asking about uh, cut loss service on, on general TARC routes. I know a little what, bit about that. Is that right? Well, what, so basically for, in order for passengers to qualify, they have to reside within three-quarters of a mile of a fixed route. And so when TARC eliminates a fixed route, they thus uh, eliminate eligibility potentially for someone that was using TARC-3 on that route. That's a great question, Uh, and I don't know the answer to that either, but I will find the answer to that. And if somebody wants to tell me where I can – whether I should send that answer to Debbie, uh, who you'd like to – me to communicate with about that. It's a great question, and I, and I just don't know the answer to that. That's correct. Let me go back to sort of the civil unrest issue. I thought maybe that's where you were going when you mentioned uh, uh, Facebook and and, uh, and social media. Um, one of the things that I think has been really interesting to
to me and that I've learned a lot about um, is, you know, uh, social media is terrific uh, in terms of keeping people informed and, and you know, you all know. I mean, there, there are a lot of great aspects to it. There, frankly, are some really uh, troubling aspects to it, in my opinion, too. And, and I think we've seen some really bad uh, uh, things as a result of and in connection with the civil unrest. I mean, we had um, uh, reports a couple of weeks ago that were just, I mean, I was, I was getting calls in my office about people who were just terrified. And they had seen things that things were going to be happening at various protests and that whole streets were going to be shut down. They would not be able to get to the airport. You know, schools were thinking of closing. Some did. Uh, some offices closed. And a lot of that was really spread by social media reports that just had no merit, frankly. And that really bothers me. I don't know who would want to do that. I don't. It just doesn't make sense to me that anyone would want to scare people and and keep them in their home or make them decide they're going to cancel a vacation because they're not going to be able to get to the airport. Just just really kind of crazy things. And so I think we've all tried to, to, to tell people, you know, just be skeptical of things that you read or see on social media. Um, you know, it, I don't mean everything is wrong. But it's certainly true that not everything is right. And uh, and it, so, I, you know, going forward, I think that's probably also um, um, a good advice. Uh, it's just it's uh, I saw some things that, you know, really troubled me in terms of folks trying to scare people or really kind of stir the pot, if you will. Barry, I see your hand is raised. Thank you. First of all. I want to commend you on the thoroughness of your newsletter and also as someone who lives in your district, Bill, I've received answers to questions from you and Kyle within hours of emailing you. I mean, I was blown away both times. So I really, as as a resident and as one of your constituents, I'm delighted with how much you care about this neighborhood and this district. I do have a question about TARC 3, um, and actually the same applies to TARC uh, bus service. Um, given our pandemic, I am pretty seriously concerned about, as we all are, about things being sanitized, and I know that both buses and Park 3 vehicles are thoroughly sanitized before they go out at the beginning of a day. And I know that TARC 3 has taken uh, precautions as have, as have the um, procedures used on buses. But to my knowledge, and I have inquired with TARC 3, and I, I think the same applies to buses, I don't believe that any disinfecting is done in between passengers. Um, and this is a real concern of mine. I did speak with folks at the TARC-3 program who indicated that uh, it was things were disinfected at the beginning of the, of the, of the vehicles leaving the, the garage and at the end, but not in between. And I was also told that I couldn't bring my own disinfectant because of the impact on upholstery. So 
I, I'm wondering if my information is accurate, and I'm wondering if anybody else shares those concerns. A whole lot of elderly and uh, medically fragile folks do ride the TARC-3 service. And mm-hmm. so just um, if you should have a chance to do any inquiring, that might be really helpful to us. Okay, thank, thank you. you. And I don't know, thank you, and thank you for the for the compliment on the on the newsletter. Um, we, uh, I I don't know the answer to that, but I will certainly inquire about that as well. Bill, did you have a question? I was just going to ask you to comment on the telephones, the um, the five G and the um, uh, everything that uh, Horizon uh, is doing. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, um, you know, the the next uh, level of uh, of cell phone service uh, is is five G, and Verizon is in a major program to install that kind of equipment in Louisville. And um, you know, they're one of the problems with five G. I mean, there are, the advantage of five G, of course, is that it it has far higher speeds in terms of uploading and downloading data. A downside, in my view, is that the signals from 5G antennas, and these are small cell antennas, so these are not great big cell phone tires like you see in parts of the community. These are small cell antennas that go on the top of telephone poles, essentially. They're they're basically on standard utility poles, maybe 10 feet taller than the standard pole, and then there's this antenna on top of it. Um, and uh, because of the way 5G works, the signal from each one of these goes a very short distance. So you need a lot of these small cell uh, poles. And so we think there will be, we do not know, um, the way it works, Verizon comes in and, and tells us we want to put one here, there, and yonder but does not tell us what the whole network looks like in the city. But I, I think a very conservative estimate is that there'll be uh, over 600 of these um, antennas around the community. Uh, I currently have about 60 uh, that are proposed in my district. So I think it's likely to be probably far higher than 600 and that's just Verizon. So uh, the, also the way you get the, uh, signal to these antennas is through fiber that's laid in the ground and or on or on aerial poles um, but Verizon is at least in my area is principally not using aerial poles but putting them underground which means in most cases they are uh, uh, going uh, boring under sidewalks uh, sometimes streets but mainly boring under sidewalks uh, and running fiber and frankly, it's just been a horrendous mess. Um, they started this in, you know, on, on, I first saw this on Frankfurt Avenue well more than a year ago. Uh, I think the last of the repairs were done just a few weeks ago. Uh, some spots have been torn up three different times. They would come in, tear it up, and sit there for a while with asphalt or, or gravel and uh, or worse. And, and for you, I know a horrible situation where there'd just be a barricade, uh, you know, and, and, and really no way to get around it. Um, and it's just sat for way too long. I complained about it. I got public about it. It was, you know, Debbie and Bill know that, um, yeah, because at one point I 
the reporter went to, to speak to them about it and about the problems it caused. So, that, you know, that's one aspect of this. I think that's kind of resolving at this point, at least in my district in, the most, in most cases. Now, the other problem, though, this is just down the main thoroughfares, Brownsboro Road, uh, Melwood, Frankfurt Avenue. Um, but then they'll have to run fiber down the side streets to go to these poles, wherever the poles are going to go. So, um, you know, we're going to have some of these same issues down side streets maybe not quite as bad as we did on the main streets. Then the other aspect of this is then that, you know, they're going to put up antenna up. And uh, if you're a homeowner um, and you get a notice that there's going to be a, a, a pole in, in, in the, in the right of way, it's not your property, it's the right of way, but you sometimes think of it as your front yard or it's in the area between the sidewalk and the, and the street, uh, you know, the little green verge there of grass. Uh, they're going to replace a 30-foot pole with a 40-foot pole and put an antenna on top of it. Uh, you may not like that much. And so that's what I'm dealing with in a bunch of different locations around the district. We have very limited ability. In, in, now, we do have an ability. Let me. These are sort of two separate issues. In terms of how we handle the right-of-way and the sidewalks, I think we have an ability to do better than we've been doing. And I've been pushing hard for you know, just not the, not allowing these long sidewalk closures. You know, if we're going to tear up a sidewalk and it has to be torn up, there's nothing can be done about it. It needs to be fixed promptly. And it's not prompt enough for me. But, you know, that's that's just been an issue that we're, I continue to work on. Um, in, in terms of the antennas, uh, we don't have much ability to regulate them. The federal government has it, it wants to push out this technology and so the federal communications commission has imposed a bunch of regulations which basically say cities if you want if you have a rule that m makes this so it won't work you know you where you space them where you tell them to put them whatever so that the 5g system won't work you can't do that so we are very limited in what we can do in terms of regulations we can do some in terms of aesthetics and how the antenna might look and where you put it and that sort of thing what kind of notice you have to give. And we're working on some new regulations in that area. But that's basically the 5G story. And so there are people who, you know, the, the, the objection to the antennas come several ways. I told you about the aesthetics. You may not like the fact that there was this pole in your yard. In most cases, I will say, they are putting these on poles that are already exist. So there's already a pole there. They might put in a taller pole and replace the one pole with a 10-foot taller pole, but in most cases, not all, but in most cases, we're not adding new poles. Uh, and that's good because we got plenty of poles, as you know. We don't need any more poles in the city. Uh, but, you know, those are the kind of issues that I'm dealing with in 5G. So they're, they're, some people don't like them because of the, of the aesthetics. There's also some people who have health concerns about the signals from 5G um, uh, wireless. Um, you know, the FCC says that this is that there are no health issues with these. But, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I am saying is that we have zero ability to regulate these on health concern basis. We cannot say, no, you can't put these up because we think or our neighbor thinks or somebody thinks that, you know, they're not safe in terms of health concerns. We cannot do that. We are forbidden to do that by the federal government. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, 
I've been dealing with 5G for in both of these aspects for you know a long time, and I probably will be for a few more years. There, there are a lot more of these coming. I have a question. This is Carla. Bill, I want to talk about the the tourism industry here in Louisville, and I, I don't know. Maybe a lot of people on this call don't think that's really uh, important or or impacts us very much, but tourism prior to COVID nineteen and prior to the protests was a huge part of this community's revenue. And um, not only, and you think, well, okay, just keeps the hotel rooms full, but the dollars that come in 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 tourism multiply so many times in the community. And from the times that the American Council of the Blind has had a convention here in Louisville, which is five times over the last 40 years, uh, 45 or so, um, you know, those dollars just circulate so much in the community and they're, they are they play a huge impact in Louisville and in our economy, therefore in our tax base, all kinds of things. Do you how do you see not not just um I guess it would almost be I mean, nationwide to me, the tourism industry is by the virus has almost been destroyed in many ways. And and how do you see us being able to rebuild that industry? to at least something that might be significant to Louisville? That's a great, great question. And, uh, and it does have, you know, significant issues for, obviously, for workers and hotels. Um, I see um, uh, the, the, the room tax revenue, which has gone, you know, it's 80% or more down. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it, it's, it, it's, um, it has implications for a lot of things. I mean, that's how we fund our tourism bureau. That's how we are paying for the convention center. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 so it, there, there are some effects on, 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 uh, on, on how the city really operates, not just the tax revenue, but obviously also, you know, all the employ, employees who are affected. I don't know the answer to your question. I mean, I, 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 I'm told that there are people who are, uh, beginning to book conventions at some time in the future, but I, I, th- this is one where, in my opinion, it's going to take a long time. I mean, if you think about it, think about the American uh, Council on the Blind Convention. I mean, you, you, if you were going to be investing a lot and in, and in, in making plans for a convention, would you that that was a big national scope convention? Would you be comfortable scheduling it now for next July? <laughs> Probably not. Actually, right? well, and, and actually, those are already signed and on the books. Like in the case of ACB, we're signed in Phoenix yeah. next year, and yet we don't know if we're going. We were going to Chicago right. this year, and we had to, right. you know, we were very pleased to be able to get out of that con- that right. contract. But I mean, there's so well, many and other that's things. What I, that's, you know? And that's what I mean. So if you're, you know, yeah. if you're if you're looking at another at a, at you know you. You know where you went this year, and you're looking for your next spot. Would you would you be willing to to sign any kind of binding contract in Louisville for July of 2021? I think the answer is probably no, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think we know enough at this point to do that. So, so I think that I mean, I don't mean to be this pessimistic about this, and I'm not an expert on conventions, so I'll, I'll say that up front. 
but I, I, there's going to be a lag time before that comes back. I mean, there just is. Oh, yeah. and, 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 uh, and I don't know how long it's going to, how long the lag is going to be, but it's a, uh, it's a really great question and, and a, and a real concern. Um, you know, and there are other concerns. I mean, we, we, this is my fairly minor one compared to the whole city, but we had a big issue at sort of debating the Bell of Louisville this year. So, uh, you know, we, you know, we have to subsidize the operations of the Bell of Louisville. And the mayor's proposed budget actually did not do that. Uh, and council members were adamant that, no, we, we had to do that. We had to put the subsidy in. We had to keep the Bell of Louisville operating. And that's fine. We did that, actually. But you don't know how long it's going to operate. So the Bell, as I understand it, is sort of the biggest uh, – it gets some convention and visitor, convention trade. But a big piece of their business has been busloads of people uh, who are on bus trips and, and would come and ride the Bell as part of their bus trip. You know, there's a – I think – uh, that there's the, the the age group on who travel on bus trips is, you know, like my age or or older who are in the susceptible group for for COVID nineteen, and my guess is that that has gone way down that kind of travel. And when's that going to come back? I mean, when are right. people going to be really comfortable uh, getting into a very crowded, you know, bus full of tourists? Uh, with no social distancing and, and, you know, anyway, so I, I, I there are just a lot of those things that, are, that I think are really, um, it's going to be a while. And, uh, and I, you know, it, it's, um, I don't know how long and I don't think anybody knows how long, but I, I, I think, you know, folks who are saying there's going to be a vaccine in November or, or soon thereafter, and I certainly hope there is, but that's not going to bring everything back immediately, for sure. Yeah. It's a great question, though. It's, well, that, it's, got, that it's, whole, it's got a big, it's got a huge effect on downtown. Yeah, it's, well, that whole that whole tourism industry is. I mean, when you look at all the places that it branches out, um, the Bell is an excellent example, uh, but. You know, when you have a convention in town and they come in and they set up the exhibits and 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 then, you know, they have the bus tours from there and all of the locations where people go visit and I mean it's it's like a it's like an octopus. There's just arms out in all directions. Yeah. And, and it and it it gets out into the neighborhoods too. I mean it, it, yes. it you, you know, yes. we had we had a store on on Frankfurt Avenue that closed and and I, you know, whether this is COVID related, I don't know. I've not talked to this woman, but it was a, a, a sort of a, a tourist kind of shop called 502 Lou. It was down near the hub in Clifton, and it sold, you know, stuff, the kind of branded Louisville kind of stuff. And she was very interested always in in tourists uh, and got a lot of convention type business that came to Frankfurt Avenue, which I I really had not thought of that happening a lot, but that that was a you know, that was a source of business for the restaurants and that kind of store. She has closed. Um, and and I wouldn't doubt that 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 COVID had some effect on that. So that's one of the reasons we're trying to help with the small business relief fund that I talked about to try to keep these people in business so that they're still there when the economy starts to recover. And I have one more question. I'm on the board for United Crescent Hill Ministries, 
And so, therefore, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the the money that the ministerial associations, uh, that the city support of, of some of those social service programs that the ministerial associations handle. And I hope that that will be able to continue, you know, at the levels um, in, in the coming, that that doesn't take a hit because of COVID-19, because that really touches a lot of people who are in the lower income levels. Yeah. No, I certainly hope it doesn't. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think that would be one of the very last things that we would try, that we would cut. I mean, the ministries, I uh, have a great return for the city and, uh, you know, so it's, uh, and we know that the need is greater than it ever is. I mean, the ministries and other social service agencies are seeing people who never needed public relief before uh, and who never thought they would ever need public relief who, who, you know, find themselves unable to work. David Wild, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, Bill, I, I think we have a, a problem we really need to address in the future pre-police chief. Uh, and I think the fact that Mayor Fisher has never addressed the fact that we've had for five more years serious gang problems in this city. In order to satisfy racial issues and make the city healthy again, for me it is imperative that we get a police chief that is strong on crime, has some background in dealing with gangs, but at the same time loves his people, men, women, regardless of what race they are. And I just don't see Fisher really addressing that at all, and that really concerns me. We're going to get through the race races one way or another, but in order to revitalize the city, you've got to cut down on the grind, the gangs and the crimes in the West End. And it's not just the West End. It's all over. But I just don't have faith in right now the way that's going. Can you address that for me, please? Yeah, sure. We have a an interim chief who's going to start October 1st, who's pretty well regarded, I think, in the department. Uh, Yvette Gentry, who was, uh, who was uh, an assistant chief in the past, has come back to, to do that. She's not going to be there very long. Uh, we have 20 applicants for a, for a permanent chief, and uh, there's going to be a, you know, there's been a, a lot of public outreach already. There's going to be a, 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 a committee that's going to have some Metro Council members on it. Uh, I'm not one of them, but there are some who, have, who have, some who have a police background uh, and uh, and members of the public and obviously people from the police department who are going to be selecting the new chief. I don't know who the applicants are, and uh, um, you know, I, I I think we're all aware of uh, of uh, of gang issues. I will say, you know, I think we made a mistake. I said it at the time. Uh, but in, not in the budget we passed in June, but the budget we passed in June 2019, we cut $26 million out of the budget in order to balance it, to deal with the rising pension costs. And among the things we got rid of was a, a, a violence interrupter program, um, which I think, frankly, could be helping us at this point. Uh, and, and I read about this around the country, that people that have those kind of programs that are designed to intervene I mean, when you're talking about gangs, uh, uh, shootings, a lot of what you're talking about is retaliatory shootings. So there's somebody gets shot and then, then somebody from the gang shoots somebody else and somebody from the other gang shoots somebody else. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's all sort of predictable. I don't mean you can stop it easily, but it's kind of predictable. 
And so I've, a lot of cities are, are using various kinds of ways of trying to intervene and stop that before it happens. And, and frankly, we had a program which we cut as part of that. We are seeing a spike, at, and I think this is COVID-related too, in uh, violent crime all over the country. I mean, cities all over the country are seeing their, their shooting rates and their murder rates uh, increasing pretty significantly this year, and we are too. And you're absolutely right that a that, that, that piece of it is, uh, uh, is gang-related. No question about that. Well, Bill, I do prison ministry. I'm working in the West End with a man who's paroled out and doing a marvelous job named Todd Moore in the West End, and I do prayer walks. And um, I know that those young kids down there won't cross the street if there's a gang on the other side. Uh, and I know those boroughs are, are just volatile. My point is, and you got a good point, um, you got to stabilize that for the city to be healthy. So the new police chief, to me, is an integral part of getting the city healthy again. I appreciate your comments. I really do. Well, I agree with you about that. I agree with you about that. And, it's you know, it's multifaceted. It's, it's, I, I think that's an extremely important job. I've talked about police oversight and, uh, and police reform. I think that's an important part of this, too. I mean, I think police would tell you that one of their big problems in solving violent crime is that they don't get much cooperation from the public. And, um, and, you know, if we had better relations, we might be able to get more uh, cooperation from, from the public. We're certainly not getting that now. Um, And, and I think any, anybody in the police department would tell you that's a, that's a big problem. I thought one of the good things the council did with Mayor Fisher is ask for the police to live in those boroughs. Now, that's going to take yeah. the conviction and courage, and, and, and to, but it's, that's a, a very wise move in my part. So I commend Yeah, you. so this – thank you, and that, that's really something that I've been pushing on. I, and you're right. It's, this is not a quick fix, and, it, and you know, it's, it's – the idea here is that we help subsidize homeownership for a police officer who, who will live in a, in a, uh, a low-income yeah. – area and and that's been done in other other cities we have not done that here more than a third of our officers don't live in jefferson county and a very small percentage live in you know our most uh, high crime areas i think a lot of people would tell you that just better interaction with the police if, if you if you if you you know if you see police other times instead of when they're responding to a crime and so this is one way that you would see that. So, it, you know, it's, I, it seems to me it's certainly worth trying. Thank you. This is Kathy Arnold. The thing that you were talking about earlier, which was the contract tracing, I'm sure everybody is, but Tom and I, we're getting all these phone calls with really strange numbers. And so if I don't recognize a number, I don't answer it. So what I was wondering is, when someone from contract contact tracing calls, do they leave any kind of message where you can call them back and so that you'd recognize that that's who they were? Or what is your recommendation on that? It's a great question, and I do not know the answer to it, but it's one that I will put on the list and ask the health department and get Debbie an answer about. It's a terrific question. Yes, no more questions. I'd like to thank Bill for coming on a Friday evening and uh, talking to us and answering our questions. 
thank you so much. You have a good evening. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks to, thanks to all of you. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.